You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. This episode is a recording of our event, Uyghurs Under Threat. In our third and final panel, we will be hearing from our policy and legal experts. This is uh, a panel where we're going to really talk about what can be done to um, to help the Uyghur and, and who are under enormous uh, duress and facing atrocity crimes. So to join me today, we really have, uh, we're really fortunate we have um, a really key group of experts that have different insights, that play different leadership roles and bringing up ideas on what can be done. So I'm going to introduce our panelist members uh, in the, the order that they're going to uh, present. They each have five to six minutes to make an opening statement. And then we will get into uh, a Q&A with the audience and a general discussion. So uh, first speaker we have today is uh, Garnet Genius. Uh, he's a member of the Canadian Parliament for Sherwood Park, and he's a shadow minister for international development and human rights. And he's been a, an outspoken um, figure in the Canadian Parliament in trying to protect human rights of the Uyghur. So we're very grateful to have you with us today, Garnet. Uh, followed by Garnet, we'll have Nuri Turkel, Nuri is a Uyghur, uh, Uyghur human rights lawyer, founder of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and currently is a commissioner of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Nuri, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, following Nuri, we'll have Sophie Richardson. Sophie is the China Director at Human Rights Watch. Um, I'd have to say it's great to have Sophie join us when we came under, my colleagues at MIGS came under enormous pressure by the Chinese consulate in Montreal for hosting Dolkin Issa. Uh, Sophie and many other uh, people on Twitter really supported her cause. So, Sophie, so wonderful to have you here. It's a pleasure. Here. Last but not least, we have Preston Lim. He's a JD candidate at Yale Law School. Preston came to our attention. He wrote a very powerful op-ed in the Globe and Mail about what could be done, um, what concrete policy actions could be done. So we have four great minds, great speakers, different viewpoints. So I would like to first... Uh, give the floor to Garnet to make your opening statement. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, such an honor to be part of this uh, conversation. I've been listening to uh, the earlier discussion, and uh, it's so uh, heart-wrenching and so important to hear from uh, people that are themselves uh, survivors. And so it's yeah. it's, a, it's a tough act to follow in some ways. Uh, and I'm going to try not to repeat uh, the the descriptive aspects. I think those who have been listening today uh, will will know very clearly by now that there are horrific abuses going on, abuses which the Subcommittee on International Human Rights have said uh, constitute uh, genocide. And and this Canadian parliamentary body is the first in the world uh, to to come to that uh, conclusion, uh, and and did so on a uh, multi party uh, basis. Um, what, what I thought I would do in my opening comments here to, to build on the discussion uh, that has happened already is, is to just start by making the point that uh, we live in an age of uh, performative emotion and where performative emotion, even real emotion, uh, is very important for politics and for our evaluation of, of politicians. We expect when we hear of uh, horrific events going on around the world. Uh, we expect our politicians to feel deeply uh, in response, to feel disturbed, to feel moved in response to those events, uh, and then to express those feelings in a way that is sincere, that connects with us. Uh, and uh, we we uh, often draw the conclusion from that expression of feeling uh, that politicians are, are in line with our thinking on these issues and that that's a good thing. Um, but uh, performative emotion or real emotion can be uh, very misleading as well in the sense that what we expect of our leaders uh, is not just that they feel moved by the events that are taking place, but that they actually step up and act in response to those events. Uh, as a member of parliament, I have the power to do far more than just feel and express my feelings about uh, what is happening in Xinjiang or East Turkestan. Uh, I have the power to advance policy, and certainly, especially uh, the government, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Prime Minister, has the power to put in place uh, policies that concretely respond to and address these events. Uh, so what we should be calling for from our leaders is not simply that kind of emotional 
uh, personal response, but as concrete policy actions uh, that stand up for the vulnerable, that, that, that advance justice, that use the tools at our disposal uh, to, to actually respond in a way that, that, is, that is good and right and advances justice. Uh, we're used to, um, we're used to the, the sort of uh, Disney film caricature where you can tell based on someone's feelings whether they're on the right side or the wrong side of, of the story. Uh, but as we learned from from Mulan, Disney's not a, a good a good guide for human rights, and uh, that the the feelings that people people express may be misleading about what they are or or are not doing. So, what we need to ask of our leaders is that they take concrete action. Let me just identify what some of those things are, uh, and these are enumerated have been enumerated by the Subcommittee on International Human Rights. There's a question of recognition of the crimes uh, that have taken place, but then moving on from there. Uh, we need to impose Magnitsky sanctions on those that are responsible for these horrific human rights abuses. Um, Magnitsky sanctions are targeted sanctions against individuals that are involved in human rights abuses. And thus far, Canada has not used the Magnitsky Act at all against any officials involved in human rights violations in China, despite the fact uh, that China is uh, really leading the world in abusing human rights and in trying to create a kind of more permissive environment for human rights abusers and in redefining international doctrines of human rights uh, in, in ways that are, that are contrary to uh, what human rights truly are. Uh, in spite of that fact, Canada has not used Magnitsky sanctions at all against those abusing fundamental human rights uh, in, in Xinjiang, in Tibet, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, or in, in any other part of the People's Republic of China. So that would be a concrete action that would make a real difference. It would send a, a message to officials that are involved in these things that they will be held accountable. Uh, and Canada's laws around supply chains, even around government procurement, are, are very, very weak. Uh, we're buying PPE from China, and uh, the 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 current mechanism for addressing to ensure that that human rights abuses are not involved in the production of that PPE is is one of self certification. The companies check the box saying, "Yeah, no problem. These comply with human rights," and then we take uh, take them at their word. So uh, we need to do so much more to toughen our, our laws and our policies uh, to ensure that we are not importing into Canada. And certainly the government is not purchasing uh, products uh, that are made through uh, the the kind of horrific human rights abuses that we're, we're seeing targeting uh, Uyghurs. And there's another piece to this supply chain uh, process, and that is that the government uh, of, of uh, uh, that, that we, Canadian entities should not be invested in organizations that are involved in uh, the the uh, mass attention, surveillance, uh, killing uh, of 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 Uyghurs. Uh, it, last year, we conservatives raised in question period the fact that uh, the Canadian pension fund was invested in Dua and Hikvision, two uh, Chinese state affiliated companies that are uh, very much involved in creating the kind of surveillance infrastructure uh, that is involved in the abuse of of Uyghurs, and so. You know, I think what Canadians would expect is that our, at, a, at a very minimum, that the dollars they save in their pensions are not used in in these kinds of uh, of abuses. So I want everybody who's who's following this issue, who's watching, uh, to be in touch with your members of parliament, uh, to to push your members of parliament and challenge them, challenge them to act. Uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, when asked about this issue regularly, he says we are deeply disturbed by what is happening in Xinjiang. Well, with all due respect, I don't care if he's deeply disturbed. I care about what he will do. Will he impose Magnitsky sanctions? Will he reform our supply chain laws? Will he work with our colleagues to, to address uh, the issue of, uh, of government procurement, importation of PPE that may have involved uh, slave labor? Uh, it, is, it is the call to action which is so important for powerful people uh, like me and especially like government ministers, uh, that they not just feel, but that they act to advance justice and protect the vulnerable. Thank you. Thank you, Garnet, for um, the, the detailed opening statements and, um, and the comments on what can be done and uh, for holding the government to account is your role in the Canadian Parliament. So I would now like to turn to Nuri Turkel to make an opening statement. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you um, uh, for those uh, powerful uh, statements. Um, Garnet, I appreciate you being a leader uh, in this fight 
uh, everything that you said should be a norm, uh, should be uh, should be a model uh, for those who are in power, who can make difference. Uh, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that we've been hearing uh, certain politicians or people, uh, influential people, expressing concern, outrage, but expressing concern is not an action. Uh, we need to see people taking action like the way that you have been. And I'm, I, I, in my uh, personal official capacity, I want to thank you for uh, spearheading the effort to uh, the Canadian um, to uh, have this uh, recognition labeling uh, uh, started in Canada. I think our government should also uh, start working on that. Uh, recognition is almost as important as uh, taking real action. Um, and as you perfectly pointed out that, um, uh, you know, those in power uh, need to do something concrete uh, and use their uh, influence and, and, and position to make a difference. In that regard, I'd like to uh, start by um, mentioning something that has been also included in, in most of the talking points uh, that we've been hearing. The history is repeating itself. History does not repeat itself. People uh, who are in power or uh, bystanders let the history repeat itself. This is exactly what is happening. I've been speaking on these issues almost four years. I'm almost getting tired of repeating myself uh, and, and, and sounding the alarm. Uh, initially, when we brought up this issue to public attention, uh, most people uh, find a disbelief. Uh, it is actually, this is what is happening. The governments around the world that has a diplomatic, economic, uh, security uh, engagements with communist China is committing genocide in the daylight. And they have been uh, engaging in mass detention, as correctly been pointed out, the largest incarceration of ethnic minorities since the Second World, uh, since the Second World War. Uh, people have a different ideas, uh, different numbers, um, as far as the uh, the number of people being detained. Even if it's just one million, that's more than the size of the population in the District of Columbia, uh, nation's capital. Chinese government um, uh, uh, has been telling the world that they are letting those detainees to graduate. Uh, graduate to where? Uh, is that a school? As if you had a school, would you run it like a, a military, a protected like a prison? Uh, with the intention to break the Uyghur lineage, family uh, family connection, uh, and roots. Uh, so the international community is still uh, uh, played uh, by the Chinese rhetoric, uh, Chinese uh, disinformation campaign, uh, Chinese propaganda, Chinese influence campaign. So um, uh, as recently reported by BuzzFeed, uh, satellite imagery uh, have identified 268 uh, new uh, prison and detention centers built since 2017. Uh, and it, it is still happening. The Chinese government has built industrial scale prison system uh, that the world has not seen in a modern memory. Uh, in September 2020, Australian Strategic Policy Institute identified, identified 380 detention centers that have been built across the uh, Uyghur region since 2017. Uh, and these the, every county, literally every county has a prison camp. So there's a strong evidence reputes Chinese uh, official claims that the detainees have been released uh, or uh, reaffirms that the detention of Muslim minorities, uh, this also confirm uh, that the Chinese government's intention. When we talk about the genocide determination, uh, legal scholars, policy experts often say, well, it's hard to uh, prove the uh, uh, intention of the Chinese government. Yes, we have seen the action, but if you just pay close attention to the rhetoric, the official statements made by uh, 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 someone like Sui Tianke, who is here in Washington last decade, um, the Chinese government in the mission to convert, uh, transform the Uyghurs into a normal human being. So last time I checked, no one given the Chinese Communist Party an authority to determine who is a normal being normal human being or not. So, uh, and also when you look at the type of population that they're targeting, they're targeting children, they're targeting Uyghur women. Uh, Garrett mentioned the um, uh, the forced labor situation, uh, the PPEs. Think of a minute, uh, the United States government sees 13 tons of uh, Uyghur women's hair. That is just one shipment. How many women's hair need to be shaved? A head needs to be shaved to make that one shipment. And how many shipments that we missed? 
how many shipments that the Chinese government's been made around to send around the world, and uh, and and where are the where are the what other the other countries uh, that have been receiving the Uyghur women's hair, and imagine that the the mask that you buy in a local uh, pharmacy, CVS, Walmart, uh, Walgreens. Uh, possibly being made by the uh, Uyghur uh, slaves, modern slaves. And, and imagine that the baby pajamas that you buy uh, in the stores possibly been made by Uyghur slaves. As you know, that the Chinese government uh, uh, using a Uyghur woman uh, as a commercial uh, commodity and Uyghur uh, human being as a modern day slave to pollute the global supply chain. So anyone who thinks that this is another human rights problem uh, should uh, do, uh, do a, a basic research. Just to Google Uyghurs uh, and find out, uh, see what you will find out. So this is affecting everybody's life. And also one other thing that makes this is relatable to everybody's concern is the, uh, the development and exportation of the digital authoritarianism or digital dictatorship. The Chinese government uh, to this day, uh, based on the recent hearing that uh, Yusuf organized, uh, managed to export its surveillance technology to uh, uh, over 80 countries. Uh, last summer, based on New York Times report, uh, last May to be exact, there were about 36 countries looking into or in the, in the process of adopting Chinese surveillance technology. But now it, the number went up to 80 over 80. What does it mean? That means that the uh, the democracy, the privacy, uh, and, and surveillance will be uh, affected uh, by uh, Chinese technology. Uh, going forward, the Chinese government uh, provided technology will pr uh, monitor the individual voting process, uh, a, a contact, uh, and also it will affect the democratic norms that we appreciate and cherish. So this is coming to us. Uh, this is affecting everybody's life. So the businesses, the uh, political leaders, the consumers, uh, lawmakers, uh, NGO representatives, citizen activists, uh, engineers in those uh, high-tech firms can no longer say that this is just another human rights problem. So with that, I'd like to uh, mention a few things um, and then I uh, conclude my remarks. The United States government been, uh, uh, been very active uh, in its policy and, uh, uh, and legislative responses. Uh, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act has been enacted since June. And there's another uh, uh, legislation uh, has been uh, in the works in the U.S. Congress uh, addressing the forced labor uh, issue. Recently, it has been voted out in the House, uh, currently being considered in the Senate. And on top of that, the, uh, the current administration uh, added uh, uh, 48 Chinese entities to the entity list. Uh, uh, the, the movie Mulan uh, credited police department as one of those 40, 48 entities. And on top of that, the uh, global Magnitsky sanction uh, for the first time uh, implemented uh, or used against a sitting Chinese uh, government official. And also the US government uh, did something uh, remarkable uh, that we have been advocating for years, which is to go after this um, uh, paramilitary Xinjiang Production Construction Corp, XPCC, uh, which believed to have over 800,000 shell companies around the world. So uh, it works. Uh, uh, the Chinese government uh, did uh, announce its own list of uh, sanctions, but it was tit for tat. There was no real retaliation. So that tells us that the, the, the Western democracies need to stop worrying about China's retaliation. Do what is right. Do what is conscionable. We're talking about real lives, real human beings who have names, family connections, aspirations, just like all of us. Uh, with that, I, I, I stop here and I'd be happy to take um, or participate in Q&A session after the panel. Thank you very much, Nuri. That was a, a very um, fascinating uh, statement. And I, I really want to thank you for mentioning the digital authoritarianism side of this. I think um, one thing that Western democracies and human rights activists need to do is really look at how tech is being used to serve on mass surveillance 
And I know Human Rights Watch has issued a report on that issue of surveillance in China. So with that, I would like to, before we go to q and I'd like to invite our other two panelists to make uh, opening comments. And next will be uh, Sophie from Human Rights Watch. Sophie, the floor is yours. Great, thank you, Kyle. It's great to be with you. Uh, and I'm glad that we could be of assistance to Megs a few years ago. Um, I wanna make sure to acknowledge all of the Uyghurs who are participating and listening today. We are uh, working very hard to do all we can to bring some degree of justice and, and a close to this nightmare for you and appreciate your patience in educating all of us. Um, Human Rights Watch has been documenting serious violations against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims for 20 years. A lot of that work focused on issues like enforced disappearances or attacks on religious freedom. But in the last few years, we have published fairly detailed pieces, both on human rights violations in the so-called political education camps and outside those camps. But also, as Kyle just mentioned, we've published fairly lengthy reports about the uses of pervasive state-backed surveillance, uh, tech-enabled surveillance across Xinjiang uh, and the, the, the problematic consequences that follow from that, essentially the detention of people for perfectly legal behavior, but also the now, essentially the inability to really live your life out of the state's line of sight. It's another form of pervasive surveillance that Uyghurs are forced to endure. But Human Rights Watch is equally interested in documenting human rights violations and trying to find some solution to them. And so an equal amount of our efforts have been in trying to make the case that abuses of this scope and scale, if and when committed by other governments, uh, has resulted in investigations and prosecutions. Uh, we look to examples like North Korea, Venezuela, the Rohingya in Myanmar. And of course, the real challenge here is that the Chinese government is incredibly powerful throughout the UN system, and particularly within the UN system, uh, which is you know, the, 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 the arena through which many of these pathways to justice typically play out. But as I'm, I'm sure Preston will do a better job than I will in talking about why some of those pathways to, for example, uh, the ICC or the International Court of Justice are problematic or blocked. Uh, we have spent a lot of effort trying to build up the political support for the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights to pursue an investigation inside uh, China. Uh, the Chinese government has essentially blocked all of these requests. It pretends it is accommodating them and willing to have a conversation. It is not willing to allow the kind of unfettered access that's necessary. Um, and so the, the game now really is to bring enough political pressure to bear for an investigation to take place outside the country. In all of the other cases I just mentioned, this is how the, sort of the process towards accountability has gotten rolling. And I think there is some good momentum. Uh, as of a year ago, we were observing somewhere between 20 and 25 governments uh, willing to challenge the Chinese government at a, an arena like the Human Rights Council. That number has steadily climbed. It's now about up to about 40. Canada has participated in those initiatives. The Chinese government will certainly keep fighting back and resisting. But the key now really is to take the political support for joint statements you know, which at the end of the day really are just expressions of concern, as Garnett was talking about earlier, and see those actually turn into meaningful vehicles that will go out, collect evidence, and come back and make a recommendation to the Human Rights Council on the basis of their findings about what the next steps ought to be. And that should, I think, if, if the evidence that we've all spent years gathering now uh, is, is consistent, should point towards some kind of accountability proceedings for the Chinese government officials who are complicit in serious systemic uncorrected human rights violations. Um, you know, I think Canada has a, a, a stronger role to play in this. It has, it has stepped up. There's more that it and a number of other governments can do, really, if they're going to move beyond a rhetorical support uh, on this on this problem to more consequential policy responses. I certainly uh, echo the call for targeted individual sanctions. Uh, and more broadly, I think Canada and other governments need to be deeply concerned about 
the influence that the Chinese government now wields throughout the international human rights system. Because, you know, as Nuri was suggesting just a minute ago, you know, we should all be responding partly because our fellow human beings are in distress. But also, I think the failure to respond much more consequentially to the Chinese government's encroachments inside and beyond its borders now mean that the very institutions that are meant to protect rights worldwide are under threat, regardless of whether the proximate problem is even one generated by or involving the Chinese government. The Chinese government is steadily making the UN's human rights system less amenable to actual accountability, a role for independent civil society, and that trend needs to be arrested and reversed immediately. So I'm happy to take questions about any of those issues, but I will now pass the baton to Preston. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sophie. So I'm now going to pass the floor to Preston. We're gonna turn your mic on and oops. Yeah, the floor is all yours, Preston. Thanks so much, Kyle. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today amongst friends. Uh, what I'd like to do in my introductory remarks is start to lay out some of the concrete legal tools uh, that Canada and the international community can take under both domestic law and international law. Uh, so we'll start with that first bucket, uh, domestic law. I think Garnet's actually already laid out a lot of these, but two solutions in particular to highlight. Uh, the first would be the imposition of Magnitsky Act type sanctions on Chinese human rights abusers. Uh, the federal conservatives, of course, have been pushing for this uh, for quite some time, but no movement yet from the liberal government. The other solution on the domestic front to highlight is the creation of a specialized and streamlined uh, asylum program for Uyghurs. Uh, a little more hope for movement on this file. We've seen in recent weeks and months that Ottawa has been a little bit more willing to file refugee claims for those from Hong Kong. Uh, so there is some hope that they will expand uh, upon a program for those Uyghurs who are lucky enough uh, to be out of China at the moment. Uh, so moving on to what will be the focus of my remarks today, uh, what actions can Canada and the international community take under international law uh, to constrain Chinese action in Xinjiang? Uh, I'd like to focus on three uh, solutions in, a part, in particular. The first is uh, a lawsuit before the International Criminal Court. Uh, the second one is getting an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. And the third one, a little more tricky legally, is the exercise of universal jurisdiction. Uh, so we'll take those in due course, one by one. Uh, let's start with the International Criminal Court. Uh, as Nuri has pointed out, and a number of speakers have pointed out already today, uh, there's a very good case, a very strong case to be made, that China has committed multiple violations under the Rome Statute. Uh, now, the Rome Statute is the international treaty that establishes the International Criminal Court. And because China has clearly committed uh, things like crimes against humanity, uh, it's very logical to say that the International Criminal Court uh, should be the body that exercises jurisdiction over Chinese human rights violations. Uh, you know, this is not just a theoretical solution. Two Uyghur human rights organizations have actually already filed a complaint with the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Uh, there are a couple downsides. However, the, the one that I'll focus on is that um, even if successful, and there are a number of questions, uh, you know, qu questioning whether or not such an attempt would be successful, even if successful, suit before the ICC takes a long time. It's a drawn out process. Uh, it could take years in this case. And so as good as the option of going to the ICC is, this is a solution that, be, uh, that should be looked at in conjunction with other international law solutions. Uh, so we'll move on to the second one. The second option is the prospect of getting an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. The ICJ is a body set up by the United Nations. Uh, there are a number of ways to get a legal case before the ICJ. Most of those routes uh, for legal reasons that I won't get into are closed off, um, but the advisory opinion pathway is still open. Uh, the ICJ is authorized to render an advisory opinion on any legal question posed to it by a list 
of authorized UN agencies. First and foremost among those agencies is the United Nations General Assembly. So the idea here would be to pose a broad question to the ICJ, a question such as, do Chinese actions in Xinjiang violate international law? And if so, um, do these violations impose any responsibilities on the international community itself? It is hoped that a clear, unbiased answer to this from the ICJ uh, will apply pressure on the Chinese government in the short term and in the long term, incrementally uh, lead to some resolution of the Xinjiang crisis. The issue here is less a legal one, but a political one. And Sophie's already mentioned how much power and influence China exerts at the UN. Uh, this is relevant in this case because to get an advisory opinion, you would need a simple majority of the General Assembly to certify a legal request. So it's just the political question of uh, can Western countries like the US and Canada get the necessary votes? It's questionable, it's a hard thing. Uh, so the third and final option under international law that I'd like to focus on is the exercise of universal jurisdiction. So what universal jurisdiction is, it refers to the idea that national courts, so Canadian courts, American courts, German courts, you name it, national courts, uh, can prosecute serious crimes under international law. Because if a crime is so serious under international law, then in a sense, it harms the international system itself. So the idea here is that, uh, say, a Canadian court can exercise jurisdiction over a Chinese official guilty or believed to be guilty of having committed uh, a gross human rights violation. Um, there are a number of problems with such an option. Uh, the first one is if you look at how universal jurisdiction has developed in past decades, it's clear that it's hard to exercise universal jurisdiction over uh, very high ranking officials. So very hard to exercise universal jurisdiction over somebody like President Xi Jinping, but more possible to exercise universal jurisdiction over low to mid ranking officials, camp guards, torturers, people like this. And the other, uh, the final note to make here is that universal jurisdiction, of course, will differ in its regulation and scope from country to country. So the laws governing universal jurisdiction in Canada are different than those governing universal jurisdiction in the United States. Uh, and the point here is that some jurisdictions may be more open to, more amenable to the exercise of universal jurisdiction than others. So just to wrap up those three main tools under international law to consider simultaneously supporting a lawsuit before the ICC, getting an advisory opinion from the ICJ, and getting a coalition of countries, hopefully, to exercise universal jurisdiction against Chinese human rights abusers. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Preston, for that um, fascinating presentation on the three different possible routes for um, to hold the Chinese government to account for these these crimes. Um, so, so I'm going to start off with a general. Before we take questions from the audience, I'd like to to ask everyone um, and just get your feedback on this. So, we've heard that Magnitsky sanctions are one of the top ways to hold Chinese. China to account, or those within the government that are responsible. However, uh, we also heard that China has become extremely powerful within the UN, and not just with the UN, but but internationally. Um, if we look at a country outside of the US, but a, a smaller country like Canada, France, Australia, if they impose these sanctions, um, some people are, are fearful that the uh, that the response of China uh, would be one of uh, extreme pressure of kidnapping citizens. We've seen Australia, um, who has called for a, an open investigation into the outbreak of the COVID-19 case, where they're undergoing uh, extreme economic um, uh, you know, embargoes of some of their industries by the Chinese government in response. So I'm wondering, in all of this, um, you know, is that fear of Chinese uh, retaliation um, uh, serious? And does that mean that we really need more and more to form a stronger coalition of countries to um, to respond uh, simultaneously if we in enacted any sanctions. Um, would anyone like to talk about, about this? Garnet. Sure, I'll buy. Please go, Garnet. 
Uh, sure, I'll kick it off, and I know someone else was interested in diving into that as well. Uh, look, I'm a big believer in the value of working to form international coalitions. I'm uh, one of the co-chairs of IPAC, which is, I think, a, an important alliance of, of legislators from around the world, cross-party, uh, working on uh, on on a coordinated response to some of these uh, these issues. And we need to have a similar government level alliance, not just legislators, but governments working together on these issues. Uh, I would say as well, though, that that we should not uh, allow the call for a, a coordinated response to be used as an excuse for inaction in the moment. Sometimes I think some of the politicians who 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 emphasize this dimension, I mean, there's a there's a need to emphasize this dimension, but some 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 use it as a tool for saying, well, let's not do it ourselves for the time being until uh, somebody else acts. I think we need to be prepared to uh, act collectively if possible and alone if necessary, uh, and also to be prepared to to lead, to, 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 to be the first one to step forward and try to bring others along with us. I think Canada was successful in doing that uh, in response to the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Canada played, I think, an important role in uh, initially being, I think, the most vocal at the forefront, but then being able to bring together a, G, a coordinated, in that case, G7 response to what was happening. And I think we need an even even broader response in this case. In terms of the possibility of, of retaliation from the Chinese government, I I just think that 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 being too concerned about that possibility uh, is is a road to disaster, both in terms of our values and in terms of our of our interests. If we give the sense that that we're holding back uh, for for fear of of uh, the use of hostage diplomacy, uh, we only incentivize further use of hostage diplomacy uh, and and further bullying and intimidation. I think the, the only way to protect ourselves is to have a, a firm line in the sand where we say, well, this is what we're going to do. Uh, this is where we stand. And uh, if, if there is retaliation, then there will be further retaliation from our side uh, because uh, China doesn't just trade with Canada uh, to be nice. It, it trades with Canada because it's in their interest to trade with Canada. Uh, and if if there is retaliation, uh, there will be some cost. And I think some cost in terms of that relationship is inevitable if we're going to hold any line of defense in terms of our security, our sovereignty, our values. Uh, but that retaliation will be at a cost to China as well. And if we are uh, resolute and principled in our response, I think, frankly, we minimize the retaliation uh, as long as as we are clear in saying that whatever comes, we will not give in to that pressure. Thanks, Garnet. I know Preston wanted to answer this. Preston, could you um, unmute your button and, and take the floor? Sure. Uh, thanks so much, Kyle. Uh, I agree with everything that Garnet has just said. Uh, just to underscore this point, uh, there are plenty of middle countries in the past several weeks and months that have acted up uh, forcefully and powerfully against uh, Chinese actions. So just to take one example, if you look at the Hong Kong issue, uh, the British government recently established a clear pathway to citizenship for Hong Kong residents who have uh, British national overseas passports. So clearly uh, middle powers can act uh, and they do act. Uh, the Liberal government in Canada uh, has not acted that point that I'd like to just draw up briefly um, is if you look at the current government's approach to the Xinjiang crisis, its approach to China more broadly, um, you can see that it really has not prioritized human rights. Uh, and I would argue that this is something of a betrayal of Canadian values and uh, of the patterns that this country has taken historically. If you look back to the last century, uh, it was, you know, Canada was one of the countries that led the charge that built a coalition uh, to roll back and to stop ultimately apartheid in South Africa. Uh, now, South Africa is not uh, China in terms of global import and power. Uh, but the point is that if the Canadian government is serious about wanting to stop these human rights abuses, it can act on its own and it can go out of its way to actively build a coalition that will implement some of the solutions uh, that the four of us have talked today. Uh, so far, uh, today, it has not done so. Thank you, Preston. Uh, Nuri or Sophie, do you have anything to add or should I go to the next question? Yes, I, uh, if I may. Um, uh, when the Magnitsky sanction was announced, uh, one of the uh, uh, former Obama administration official uh, told the media that 
uh, this will create a negative public opinion in China. That is precisely the type of language that the Chinese government wants the uh, uh, policy experts and government officials to focus on. So when when um, when 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 you're considering uh, as a government um, a, a particular decision, I don't think that uh, worrying too much about uh, a potential response uh, is is very productive. Uh, here we have uh, the current administration, for example, um, we're in a weird the political season, but I think it's worth to note that the current administration has demonstrated that the United States can find a leverage against PRC. And sky does not fall when pressure is applied to uh, Beijing. And it's uh, Beijing's response, uh, in, in, in particularly in Uyghur and Hong Kong matters, uh, have not been uh, escalatory. Instead, PRC, uh, the Chinese government's action have been largely in kind and understandably a tit, fat, tit for tat responses. So um, the, 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 the international community, particularly uh, the Western democracies, I would focus even, even in a narrow aspect, the Five Eye countries should recognize uh, that pushback with an acceptable risk um, uh, unless uh, the, these countries, uh, United States, Canada, UK, uh, push back with acceptable risk, it will re uh, sacrifice its leverage. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think the bold uh, a, a position, a policy response is, is needed. Uh, the, the threat, uh, as I pointed out earlier, uh, to civil liberties, human rights, democratic norms is much, much greater than uh, one can imagine. Thank you, Nuri. Uh, Sophie, did you want to say anything or should I move to the next? It's all been said, please go ahead. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you. Um, so I'd like to touch on, on another issue. So we talked about uh, the economic side of things, how um, Nuri, you mentioned uh, about the news story about 13 tons of hair coming from uh, women, um, um, Uyghur women, and how this caused an uproar. Uh, we've begun to see and my institute join the coalition about forced labor in the fashion industry that uh, where they're outsourced to Yingyang. Um, so we're starting to see some movement to look at the economics um, to maybe ban any companies uh, um, from, from operating in Canada or the US. Chinese companies are involved in this, uh, in, in, in these practices. I'm wondering, what's your view? Is, 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 do you think the economic side um, is a key one that can be amplified even more? Um, I know Disney came under enormous pressure. There's been pressure on, on the NBA not to have their summer camp in Xinjiang. Um, there's more pressure on Huawei because they've also invo involved in surveillance. How important is the economic side of this? And, and will that perhaps um, also have a strong impact on, on changing the behavior of the Chinese government? Who, who would like to um, to comment on this? I can start if you like. Please, please, Mary. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think my co-panelists, will, uh, my colleagues on this panel uh, would agree that the Chinese government's response to two types of uh, uh, actions. One is calling them out, um, which has been happening in some some instances, strongest term and miles term. Uh, and the other is is uh, hitting them, um, in, in uh, hitting Chinese economic interests. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the entity list uh, uh, situation with the Commerce Department. Um, because the, uh, the entities are outside of the country that has not really yielded the type of uh, outcome uh, that we were uh, looking for. But uh, with the, some legislative mandate and expanded uh, uh, approach, uh, uh, particularly in targeted sanction, I think will, great, uh, will create uh, uh, more pressure on the uh, Chinese businesses. Um, recently, um, a Washington-based think tank uh, published a policy paper, uh, which has some chilling stats uh, uh, that includes two countries uh, around the world uh, still still are the largest uh, export destination for uh, products made in the Uyghur region. One is the United States, the other is Italy. Uh, from the period uh, during the period of 2000, April 2019 through April 2020, the export volume to Italy has exp expanded almost by 200 percent, and to the United States during the same period, about 250 percent. So uh, we're talking about a massive, massive uh, uh, supply chain issues, uh, and this is not a, a, a dead uh, the uh, the lost cause either. Uh, 
I have been in communication with um, um, some U.S. business, um, um, uh, uh, global business uh, entities, and at least in one instance, I'm not authorized to disclose the name, but uh, one of those entities uh, sent me in, uh, a written uh, notice that they let go one of the uh, suppliers, provide um, uh, a technology, and then they're also terminating its relationship with a, a company that provide, provides uniform for uh, the company employees. So um, there has been some progress. Uh, H&M, for example, uh, discontinued uh, its relationship with the Chinese suppliers. But when you talk to the industry representative, they always said, while we are um, uh, engaging, we're implementing a due diligence. Well, how would you, uh, how would you do a due diligence with a, uh, a, a workers who have been subject to uh, a a most serious forms of repression in a situation they cannot even proudly say that they're Muslim, proudly said that they're Uyghur. So uh, due diligence uh, is not something that the global brands can tell us that one of the ways that they are uh, eliminating uh, the forced labor situation. So uh, this is, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the focus has been mostly uh, the U.S. businesses, but this should be a global. We're talking about the Hugo Boss. We're talking about Volkswagen. We're talking about other companies in Europe. So um, the legislators around the world should look into uh, uh, to the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that has been recently voted out in the House is a kind of a floor, not the ceiling, uh, to build upon. Uh, again, this is another issue that uh, global cooperation is much needed. Thank you, Nuri. Um, I know uh, Sophie would like to um, make a statement. Please, Sophie. Sure, just to say that, uh, you know, Kyle, your question earlier was a little bit about some of the premises along which the world has operated about China, meaning you know, if you make concessions on uh, human rights issues or if you're tough on them, China's going to retaliate and therefore governments choose not to be tough. I would argue that you know, that is a, is a flawed premise uh, given you know, where we are in the world today. But you know, as Nuri points out, uh, human rights due diligence is now expected according to the UN's guiding principles on human rights. And I think this is a largely unpolled lever. Uh, there is significant foreign corporate uh, involvement in Xinjiang. I think there's a lot of room for shareholders and for consumers to push those companies to do the kind of due diligence that they are expected to do. And you know, the theory of change there is that those companies then in turn have to push local and national authorities to give them the latitude to do that kind of inspection. What we all want is to be able you know, to sort of crack that window open and see more clearly what's happening inside the region. But the corollary is that if the companies can't or won't do that kind of due diligence, and indeed we've just observed a number of auditing firms say that they will no longer try to operate in the region because they can't have the access that they need, those companies really need to think long and hard about whether they should stay put. You know, no company should want to be uh, uh, complicit in or the face of repression or profiting from repression in Xinjiang. Thank you, Sophie. Anybody else would like to um, join in or should I go to the next question? I'll just say really briefly that I think the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act uh, from the United States is, is a good model for Canada to look at. Uh, we, we need to do so much better on the legislative front to to address these issues, but there's a role for individual companies and uh, and individual consumers. It can sometimes be difficult for individual consumers to, to, to parse these things out, uh, but you know when we have certain global brands that that are that are operating from uh, operating in Xinjiang, uh, action is 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 required, and and we can identify that those brands. And I think uh, it it is it would be very worthwhile for those companies uh, to step up now and preemptively uh, disassociate themselves from from this because uh, the the time is coming when more people are going to be aware of these issues uh, and when legislatures are going to intervene. And companies have to decide if, if they want to be uh, the, 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 the villains here or if they want to take pre preemptive action, uh, which they can then uh, receive some, some recognition for. Thank you, Garnet. And I, Garnet, I think your, your point on um, the need for parliamentarians and different legislators to look at what other legislatures are doing in the case Nuri mentioned, the Uber Human Rights Act, I, I think these are 
Um, these are examples or models that, that other parliamentarians can try to take back to their own uh, national legislators and try to, um, try to uh, implement or adopt something similar. Um, and my colleagues at our institute, we've, we've just wrote um, a policy paper on this exact, the role of parliamentarians in atrocity prevention. And we mentioned the Uber Human Rights Act. So that's going to be coming out next week, supported by the Swiss Foreign Ministry. So we'll share that online and with all participants. Um, I'd, I'd like to go to a question here. There's someone has posed a question online and, and said, should countries boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics? Um, how is boycotting um, large-scale events? Is that something that should be considered? Uh, will that uh, put further pressure on the Chinese authorities? Would anyone like to, to comment on this? Um, yes, if I may. Um, I, I, I wanted to uh, thank Sophie's organization for initiating this discussion early on. Uh, and I think I think this is a matter of conscience for athletes and countries uh, uh, potentially, uh, possibly, or planning to send athletes to compete in the uh, Winter Olympics. That um, the 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 international community made a similar mistake um, when they uh, allowing Hitler to use Olympic to uh, glorify. Uh, in 2008, the international community made another mistake uh, uh, with the Summer Olympics in Beijing. Uh, our president, uh, President George Bush, attended that ceremony. Uh, so the Chinese got a wrong idea. Uh, this is it's okay to lock up millions of uh, on its citizens in a modern-day concentration camps and then just try to pretend nothing else, nothing is 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 wrong with them, and continue a business as usual and holding this. I think it's so wrong on its face. So what the international community can do is to tell them, look, we cannot attend this event unless you shut down the concentration camps today. And also, if that doesn't work. Uh, as initiated by some senators in the United States, uh, the International Olympic Committee should renegotiate the contract with the Chinese uh, uh, as a leverage. So this this is this is one of the most important things that the international community can use to deal with the uh, the worsening uh, human rights abuses in China. Thank you, Nuri. I know Sophie would like to say something on this. Just very quickly, having. Uh done a lot on and around and with the International Olympic Committee around the 2008 games, which in our view contributed to uh, uh, the downward spiral of human rights in China. All I can say is that I really look forward to seeing the International Olympic Committee's human rights due diligence uh, review. That should be made public <clears throat> as possible. Uh, it is most unfortunate that the IOC agreed to add human rights standards to host city contracts after Beijing was awarded the 2022 games. Uh, you know, the, the IOC's reputation is already really on the line here and to fail again as it did in 2008, I think uh, is, is, you know, a very real possibility. Thank you. Anybody else? Um like to time in or should I go to the next question? Yeah, just to jump in quickly, Kyle, uh, not much to add to what Nuri and Sophie have said, uh, but the point is that to participate in the Olympics under conditions like this um, would be something of a stamp of approval. Uh, the second point that I wanted to make briefly is we saw something of a Canadian public reaction when the Canadian military sent a delegation to the military world games. Uh, now the military world games, of course, not the Olympics, uh, but there was blowback at the idea that the Canadian military was uh, dispatching military athletes to China at a time when uh, Sino-Canadian relations were uh, really at rock bottom. Um, and I think that the government uh, can make a very strong case to the Canadian public uh, as to why uh, it should not be participating in the 2022 Thank you, Olympics. Preston. Um, Garnet, there's a there's a question I think that that you, as a member of IPAC, you mentioned IPAC, which is the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Um, uh, someone wants to know more about what this group is and and what it's doing. Could you briefly um, talk about uh, what IPAC is and and what are the key issues it's 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 working on? Absolutely. Well, first of all, you can find us on Twitter at uh, IPAC Global, and it's a so just go at IPAC Global, and it's a uh, an association of legislators from around the world. Uh, we've got uh, members from Africa, from various countries in Asia, of course, from North America and Europe, uh, and and South America. We we're 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 all over the world, and uh, we're we're from right and left, and uh, you know. Uh, 
those who who don't want to identify with the, with the traditional spectrum. We've got we've got a, a wide swath of legislators who recognize that the the particular challenges with uh, the the rise of of uh, China as it's currently manifesting itself, uh, and really the failure of past paradigms to respond effectively to it. Uh, and uh, IPAC has, in a short period of time, we've been operating for a few months, been very very effective at bringing to light uh, various issues. Uh, we've done a lot of work specifically on, on, on the Uyghur issue. And uh, you had Adrian Zenz on a previous uh, panel. Uh, we were uh, we were supporting his research in, in some way. Uh, I can't recall all, all, all of the details, but it was it was through an IPAC call that I first heard about his work and uh, that precipitated some, some further action, certainly on the Canadian side. Uh, it's an opportunity for legislators to collaborate, to make joint statements, uh, to pursue collective action, also and also to uh, to learn from each other. Uh, so uh, you had previously, uh, Kyle, been talking about uh, learning from and sharing best practices. That's a big part of what IPAC can do. Uh, and one thing I should mention in that context that I that I neglected to in my opening statement was the work that uh, that I and others have been involved in on on organ harvesting. We've got uh, a bill that we're trying to get through Canada's Parliament uh, to make it a criminal offense for someone to receive an organ harvested abroad for which there was not uh, was not consent. Uh, so that tries to kind of uh, that's one one legislative tool of of combating. Uh, mass atrocities. It's it's something that we've learned from other jurisdictions. Israel has such a law. Taiwan has such a, a law. So we've we've kind of learned from other countries who are doing it. We're trying to do it here, and we're trying to encourage other countries to do it as well. So there's there's a, a good opportunity for learning and collaboration to happen uh, through IPAC. And, and again, I, I think the legislative the, the cooperation among legislators is important, but we really need to see a similar partnership come up of governments that are working together on the same issues. Thank you, Garnet. Um, I have a question coming in that I think is best, Preston, you're probably best uh, positioned for this. It's talking about the legal avenues to hold the Chinese government to account. And, and, and someone's asking, out of your three options, which do you think is the most realistic? Um, we know for the ICC, China, even if the Security Council um, wants to push this, that China will block it using its Security Council veto. So, so what do you think is the most realistic way to actually, of your three options, that could be um, implemented through international cooperation. Sure, happy to take that. Uh, so, you know, one of the points uh, that I, I should make is that uh, I think domestic law is actually a very important tool to be using here. Of the international law solutions that I've highlighted, um, universal jurisdiction is probably the most feasible. Um, but I should also just maybe talk quickly about legal remedy because that does uh, affect, of course, how desirable these solutions are. Um, the ICC and a national court acting in exercise of universal jurisdiction, uh, those, those two options can lead to sentencing for defendants. So, you know, basically uh, a specific Chinese human rights abuser uh, getting a jail sentence. The second option, uh, the International Court of Justice advisory opinion, uh, that is not uh, a formal sentence. It's just an advisory opinion. Uh, so it's, it's non-binding on the international community. I think the, the point to be made with all three of these options uh, is that even in a best case scenario, say we get positive rulings from all three bodies in question, uh, China uh, has shown in past years that it often ignores international court rulings. Uh, at the same time, it's also important to point out that even if China is ignoring those rulings, those rulings do shape uh, international discourse in a powerful way. Uh, so to conclude, uh, you know, these three international options, uh, the remedies uh, kind of up in question, universal jurisdiction is the best of those three options, but really they should all be pursued simultaneously to the exercise of domestic action. Thank you, Preston. Well, we're getting near the end of our session. I know quite a few of our speakers um, have another call at one o'clock, so I'd I'm going to wrap this up here unless anyone has one last minute point they'd like to bring up. Um, is anyone or am I, am I free to, to let you go back to your day? So with, with that, I'd like to thank uh, Garnet, Preston, Sophie, Nuri. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out your schedule to join us. Uh, we'll put this, uh, this video of this, this, this conference up online. Hopefully you can share it with your followers on social media, but we really Thank you for uh, coming and talking to a predominantly Canadian audience. 
and we look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Kyle, if I may, um, I wanted to, I, I, it will be a mess uh, not thanking you, uh, your organization. You've been doing this uh, public events uh, for uh, years now, um, when, even, when it was not popular. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nuri. Thank you, Kyle. It's just been great on this, and it, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the more we join forces, the stronger we are. So with that, uh, let's pledge to collaborate. Let's pledge to keep on supporting the Uyghur community inside and outside of China. And uh, we will not be silent. We will not be quiet like some forces would like us to be. Thank you very much.